coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. For most of the fish, it's okay. But, you know, for the truly exceptional fish, you really want to have a real, like you're fishing for tarpon. But, but hey, once again, I'm going to get some grief on this because a lot of people love fishing click and pauls, and you can certainly catch large fish with them. But I've definitely seen more of them get destroyed up here than, you know, than a solid, essentially a saltwater disc drag reel. That was Brian Niska with his take on the click and pawl versus the disc drag for steelhead. Huge main stem anadromous fish, Skeena Bay Lodge, and the steelhead school today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Before we jump into it today, I want to remind you and let you know that right now we're doing a big giveaway. We're back to it. Brian Niska, our guest today, we're giving away a trip to the Skeena Spay Lodge, to Brian's Lodge, and we're going to dig into it today, talk some tips and tricks. But if you want to get this right now, you want to enter wetflyswing.com slash giveaway is the best chance. And if you want to just book a slot because we're going to have some paid slots to this trip, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash school. That'll get you, and you can just uh, save a spot there, and, uh, and that's the best way to do it. But make sure to enter the giveaway uh, either way, and we will see you soon. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Angler's has you covered. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com Teton. Brian Niska is back on the podcast to take us into steelhead fishing and the main stem of the Skeena River. Brian paints the picture of what we can expect uh, if you're putting this trip together or heading out to the lodge. He describes why he fishes the shallow water in close to the bank and how to do it, and what tips he uses, plus how to find fish. And Brian gets nerdy with it today, and you know what I mean, in a good way, uh, this one is going to be deep, and we're going to go deep into the weeds. Here we go, Brian Niska from SkeenaFlyFishing.com. How's it going, Brian? You did a good, Dave. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I was looking back. It's funny how we do this, because we're doing quite a bit of episodes. It, was, uh, it wasn't even that long ago. I think it was October when it went live. I think we probably did the interview maybe a couple months. I think maybe it was during the season, but what's been going on? How was the last season? Talk about that really quickly and what you've been up to since we did our last interview. You bet. So I believe we would have probably been speaking sometime in September. So right in the middle of our summer, autumn steelhead season. Uh, since then, you know, we've, we've had winter skied a bunch with the kids, especially, and we just wrapped up our, our spring steelhead. So these would be winter steelhead. Uh, this is a season that starts in mid-March 
and we we finish up by the 20th of April. So that's that's kind of what we've been up to for the last little while. And you know, this year we got very lucky with some fantastic water conditions, great weather, and at times superb fishing. And you know, one thing we did manage to do that was fairly unique, I thought, is at the start of the season we we ran a little uh, little film project, and it was done in conjunction with the local tourism promoter. And we we basically put together a, a film that showcases skiing in the area as well as winter steelheading. Because uh, literally, you can catch a steelhead about nine, ten kilometers from uh, where you're where you're skiing. So it's it's kind of a neat part of the world for that. Wow, that's cool. Is that a video out there right now online? No, that's going to come out this summer. Oh, the summer. Good. Might coincide with uh, maybe around when we do our trip. We're going to talk about today. The uh, well, we're doing an event this week that we have going this giveaway, and then we're doing a trip later in the summer out to your lodge. So we're going to dig into all that today. Before we kind of get into the trip that we're going to talk about, and you're on the Skeena River, um, I'll put a link to the show notes that episode we did last October. Um, but what is the mid? So you just fished in March. You got the spring versus the fall. Like, what is the difference between those two fisheries and opportunities? You bet. So our season, um, I like to think that our season actually starts on July 1st. And at that time, you know, our first guests will be focused on, on Chinook salmon. And by the middle of July, we tend to pivot towards steelhead. Usually we'll have pretty decent steelhead, summer steelhead fishing by the end of July. August is prime time. That's the peak of migration. Uh, September, also a really nice time to be here. We wrap up in mid-October, well ahead of, of winter, which is great. So really focusing on catching fish when they're fresh. Then we take a nice little break. And then we start in, is kind of a, I think it's, it's a much smaller group of people that are interested in, in fishing in the winter, but, but they really seem to like it a lot. So we, we started in mid-March and at that time, the, the skein is going to have, you know, maybe four or five feet of bank ice. It's going to be the lowest you'll ever see it. Uh, fish are caught in very, very shallow water. It's often below freezing out. Uh, if it's raining, it's usually trying to snow. It's definitely a bit of an experience being on the river at that time of year, but you get beautiful chrome bright fish. These are winter steelhead. And so the difference between a, a summer steelhead and a winter steelhead is really their strategy when it comes to migrating up the river. So as an example, most steelhead that go into the Skeena would be considered summer steelhead. They come out of the ocean, you know, July, August, swim up the Skeena, and they're going a long way. Those fish are going to go up tributaries like the Sustat, the Maurice, Kispiox. And what they're going to do is they're going to find a piece of, of calm water, whether it be a canyon pool or a lake, or just a big tank on the river. And that's where they're going to spend the winter. And those fish will spawn, like other rainbow trout do, in the latter part of the spring. So usually June is, is the time when this would take place, May, June, late May, June. Um, a winter steelhead does something different. Winter steelhead comes in usually in response to a bit of rain on snow, uh, a rising freezing level, basically something that causes the, the water level to bump up. And those fish will come in, sit in the river for a very short time and spawn at the same time summer steelhead do. And there are a few places on the lower Skeena rivers that get both. The Kalem is a great example. Hopper is an example. Um, but generally speaking, the lower tributaries of, of a river like this are where you're more likely to find winter steelhead. And upper tributaries will just be summer fish. And the Rationale for that is that, you know, those winter fish coming back in 
you know, February, March, early April would struggle to reach those, those waters that they need to get to because of low flows and ice and what have you. So their migration strategy is to come back in the summer when there's plenty of water. And once again, find a nice place to really slow things down for the, for the winter months and kind of get ready to spawn in the, the spring and, and get out. So there's a little bit of a misconception because the waters get kind of muddy as if you're on a lower tributary, like say the Calum, and you catch a fish in December. What are you going to call it? Right. You want to call it an early winter run or a late summer? Um, but as anglers, we tend to try and put these fish in two different boxes. That's a summer fish or a winter fish. Right. Summer, winter. Yeah. And, and then you probably have something that you could probably call it a fall maybe in between the two or something like that. Uh, you know, people don't tend to do that. It's no. To see the summer steelhead. So our summer steelhead season here is obviously mid-July through till mid-October. And, you know, obviously people catching summer steelhead in November too. But from a business standpoint, we're, we're wrapped up by then. Some rivers like, you know, the Thompson, so this is a, an interior river, part of the Fraser system, you know, th those Thompson fish, when it was open, would have seen a lot of pressure in November and December. So it's kind of funny, you know, those are summer fish and people are, you know, fishing in pretty cold temperatures sometimes in, in, you know, what is clearly close to a winter month being December versus, you know, the fish that we were catching last week when it was plus 17 degrees celsius t-shirt weather and these are winter fish so yeah it's just kind of a funny thing gotcha nice so so the, yeah this is the skeena and this is the cool thing about the skeena is it's just this you know epic everybody knows about the skeena and all that stuff so i want to dig into a little bit on the lodge can you describe the lodge a little bit and i know on the last episode we talked a little bit about this on the surface but i want to paint the picture of this trip that we're putting together we're doing this event this giveaway this week but you know, later we're going to be going on this trip. So let's start with the lodge because I think it's really a unique thing you have going. Give us a little update on what, what would people expect if they're arriving there on the day one? You bet. So, you know, the first thing about the lodge is its location. So we're just upstream from the, the confluence of the copper. We're within 20 minutes drive of the airport. Obviously, we pick people up at the airport. Um, we've got 10 acres right on the Skeena and we're probably a half an hour boat ride from the, the closest public launch. So the stretch of river that we're on doesn't see a ton of pressure. Yeah, it's in a great location and it's easy to get to. And it's a really neat uh, piece of property. We got 14 A-frame cabins. We've got a, a really cool old lodge building that used to be a barn that's been renovated a few times. Um, you know, sauna, hot tub, oh, nice. stuff like that. But we've got great fishing right out front. We've got our own boat launch. We've got a wiffle golf course in the forest. We've got some hiking trails there. I'm biased, but I'll tell you, we have the, I think we have the best culinary team in the Northwest. So the food is always great. And the lodge itself, to me, delivers a really authentic steelheading experience. You know, because of the nature of our clientele, it's a little different than most places. You know, we have some younger folks, um, lots of couples, lots of females. We get people sometimes who aren't even there for fishing. They just want to be part of the lodge atmosphere. And and because we don't sell necessarily week-long trips only, you know, people can stay with us for one night. I have folks that stay with us for over a month. It's always a, a unique experience when you stay with us. And once again, you know, the people rave about our food. So we're very spoiled that way. That's right. Food, it's always good food. And uh, food and drinks is a key. So let's start with, and we'll, we're going to get into some of the fishing. And in the last episode you did, you pretty much knocked it out of the park, kind of some of the stuff you're talking about. But I want to keep hitting on the the trip so people kind of know what to expect. And I think we're thinking about doing something like four nights, you know, three days fishing, something like that. There can be some variation 
But describe that with the first night. So if people are going to be coming in here, what does the first day um, look like? You bet. So if they were to follow my advice, they would fly to Vancouver the night before, stay at one of the, the airport hotels, so you don't have to worry about the hassle of Vancouver traffic, catch the early flight up from Vancouver YVR to Terrace YXT. It's a, an hour and a half in the air. Plane will land about 10 a.m. We'll pick them up from the airport. It's you know less than 20 minutes out to the lodge. And we'll be able to get people on the water that afternoon. And you know, to me, this is the perfect way to start any fishing trip. Rather than sitting around, get your waders on, let's go. And you know, the next three days will be, you know, long, regular 10-hour days of fishing and, and learning, and followed by lots of camaraderie in the lodge and great food. I think departing, the best way to leave for, for folks is, is to catch a flight that leaves about 10.30. You know, we do breakfast at 7, lots of time to pack, get them to the airport with uh, time to spare. It's, it's the easiest and best way to, to come into Terrace. And once again, it's literally an hour and a half flight from Vancouver. Super simple. Wow, that is simple. Yeah, so it's Terrace, BC. It's not, uh, it's not Smithers, right? Smithers is up the road a bit. Yes. If you want to drive to Smithers from here, you're looking at about two and a half hours. That's not bad. Um, they have a, a smaller airport, less flights. For the size of our population, we punch well above our weight in the airport department. But part of that is because the, our airport also services Kitimat, which is a bit of an industrial hub. And when people can't fly into Rupert or Smithers because of the weather, they end up coming into Terrace. That's right. Yeah. Prince Rupert. And then you got Prince... Uh... What's the other one? Prince Rupert is, uh, that's the one on the so coast. you got Prince Rupert? Prince George. Prince Rupert to the west. They're on the coast. Smithers is a similar distance to the east, slightly further. Um, in between Terrace and Smithers, you have Hazleton. Yeah. And then to the south of us would be Kitimat. And Kitimat from Terrace is about a 45-minute drive. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Well, we're going to, like I said, we're going to dig into the fishing because I want to dig in a little more like you talked last time, like the difference between fishing main stem, Skeena versus Tribs. But Let's stay on this track a little bit. So we got Thursday. This is like a bonus, basically a bonus day. If you get there early enough, you can get on the water early. And then, and then we got like, you know, Thursday, and then we got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, there's going to be full days. What is the, when you think school wise, because, you know, I always think of it like, okay, this is more than just a guide trip, right? They're coming here. We're going to connect with everybody, but they're also going to get this school component, which is like more of a learning, like something I think of it like they could take away. So whatever they're going to learn here on this trip, uh, they're going to take away for the rest of their life. What does that school mean to you when you think about how is this different from, say, just a guide trip or a hosted trip or something like that? You bet. Um, so we offer schools through the lodge um, in a variety of configurations, but some of those schools are really focused on casting. Some of those schools are very focused on, you know, fishing. And when I when I say focused on fishing, it could be specific to the water that we're actually on. Or in some cases, people fly in and come see us for knowledge for another fishery that they're doing elsewhere. So we're going to, you know, tailor what we're doing to them. This trip with you is something entirely different. We're going to bring everything together. We're going to give folks some skill development that they can take back to their home waters. We're going to help them be more productive on the Skeena. And when they do luck into fish, understand why they did. And when they don't catch fish, understand why they didn't. And we're going to put a heavy emphasis on improving everybody's cast regardless of whether they've never cast a spare rod before they've been at it 20 years everybody's going to see vast improvement in their casting right if people are interested in fly tying we can spend some evenings at the at the tying bench we've got a nice setup there right by the pool table uh, it's set up so people can take turns and watch 
And uh, obviously uh, great fly tires amongst our guides, people like Mike Orlowski and Adrian Como. Nice. Yeah. I think fly tying would be cool. I think it'd be nice to have some options, right? When people feel like, Hey, you know, let's, yeah, let's do a fly tying session. We have that opportunity or maybe, you know, people just want to hang out by, I'm assuming there's maybe a campfire there too. Yeah. We've got a great fire pit overlooking the river. Oh, nice. That's it. We'll have some fireside chats with Dave and, and the crew and stuff. So this will be, this is going to be fun. I think that, um, I'm pretty excited about it because it's just, it's been a while since I've been up there and it's just such a cool place, right? I mean, you're in the, I mean, describe that like Skeena country for those that haven't been here, because I think of like, I mean, you know, there's wolves running around. There's like, I mean, you're in Canada. Talk about like, why, why is Skeena country? It's got the steelhead, right? We know that, but why is the whole area such so unique? Sure. So when we refer to Skeena country, we're talking about a pretty large area and it's, changes quite a bit from the source down to down to Prince Rupert where the mouth of the river is. So I'm going to hone in on Terrace for a second because that's where we're located. So Terrace is, you know, about an hour and a half from Prince Rupert by car. Road runs along the river. Let's, let's call it 80 miles or so, 90 miles, something like that, down till you're well, well in tidewater. The mouth of the river or the lower section of the river is quite brady. So a lot of times when people are, are fishing the river, they're not looking straight across at the whole river. Um, as an example, the stretch above the lodge is about 275 meters across, and that's the whole river. But there's a lot of places further down where it looks like you're fishing a much smaller stream. So we have a tremendous amount of variety to fish on the lower river. And, you know, what the skeen is most known for is, of course, steelhead, though obviously we get all other species of salmon. The, the thing about our steelhead that is special is, is three things. So the first is it's a very diverse population. You know, you've got fish that are coming from tributaries that are quite a ways up there, like the Sustad or the Babine. You've got the lower tributaries that we talked about. You've got the stuff in the middle around Hazleton. So we catch everything from 20-inch steelhead to, you know, fish well over 40 pounds that swim these waters. Biggest, uh, biggest one I've ever seen a picture of dead was, I think, 42 or 43 pounds. Wow. That was from the, the mid-'80s. And... You know, every year we hook fish that we don't see and who knows how big they might be. But, you know, the thing about skiing a steelhead is the potential for a really large one. So you've got the diversity, you've got the potential for a large fish, and we don't have crowds. I mean, it's it's a vast area. The biggest town is is Terrace, which is 12,000 people. I think Smithers is eight or 9,000 people. Um, you know, this, this is a huge area. You know, people are confused sometimes. People think the skiing is full of steelhead. We don't have a large population of fish. The entire summer run uh, for the Skeena is usually going to be around 30,000. The biggest year ever was just over 60. That gives you some idea. Um, you know, those fish are spread out over four months, but it's the quality of fish, the diversity of fish, and of course the chance to fish uncrowded waters where, especially on the lower river, we are. Those fish haven't, you know, they haven't been influenced by other people's flies yet. So they're holding where they naturally want to. This is why I say we catch fish in very shallow water. Oh, right. but their strategy is to use the shallows to avoid the seals. And a fish that hasn't been caught before and a fish that hasn't been fished on heavily before is going to behave in a more natural way. And that's the prize of the Skeena is to you know catch fish that are sitting in the water that they want to be sitting in, that are aggressive to the flies that you know you're presenting there. And you know the chance that you know, the best fish of your life. Yeah, that's amazing. And you talked about the, the crowds is interesting because you do hear a lot about, say, you know, the Bulkley is always one that comes out like, yeah, the Bulkley. I haven't been up there for a while, but, 
you hear about these stories like it's just super packed or whatever. I mean, what is that like? How is the Bulkley different versus say the, the area that we're talking about here with you? Sure. So Smithers, when most people tell you they're going to fish the Skeena, they usually will end up um, basing themselves in Smithers and primarily fishing the Bulkley. Bulkley's got about a hundred fishable miles of river. Uh, a good portion of the Bulkley, I'm going to say half of it, is very easily accessible um, for folks that are drifting or you know, bringing up a, a jet boat, you know, there's sections there that are relatively easy to read provided there's water. And so the thing about the Bulkley is it's, it's the perfect landing place for someone's first do it yourself trip. It's got, you know, tremendous variety of fish size and close to half the fish that go up to Skeena will end up in the Bulkley. But the problem with the Bulkley from my perspective, and I think maybe yours too, is the easiest access spots can appear very crowded. And it's because you know, folks don't know better. They, they sort of take, you know, from their home fishery, the density they're comfortable with. So, you know, if, if you're home river, it's normal to have five people sharing a piece of water and you come up to Smithers, it might feel normally and okay to, you know, hop into a spot, even though someone else is already fishing it. But the reality is, is with a little bit of research effort and gasoline, you could, you could get away from the crowds. And the cool thing about the lower Skeena where we are is the fish are moving by. And so, yeah, there's some bars that are hard to access because if you don't have a boat and, you know, those bars where people can drive up and walk to, we'll, we'll see more folks. Uh, we fish a lot of islands. So, you know, our angling pressure is, is not really anything we ever worry about on a daily basis. Usually we'll run seven jet boats and they will be placed as high as Flint Creek, which is just a little ways downstream of Kitwonga and all the way down towards Tidewater sometimes. So we're covering, let's call it 90 miles of river, something oh, wow. like that, you know, potentially with seven boats. And what that does for us is it gives us a pretty good idea of, you know, the pulses of fish that are coming through. It's very normal to have the boats down low, maybe have more action than people higher up or Fishing around the lodge is better than down low. What, you know, from one day to the next, giving us, you know, such a broad sample allows us to better understand migration patterns, how many fish are moving through that type of thing. And, and the skein is tricky. I'm not going to lie. Fishing the lower skein is tricky. A lot of folks try it and don't get it because they try and do what works on a river like the ball clear or wherever they're fishing back home. They're looking for the, the deep spot where the water slows. What we're looking for, and I, I think I went into this in a bit of detail in the previous one, we're basically looking for spots where fish slow down as they migrate. And the thing about the Skeena is when you do hook one of these fish, regardless of whether it's a 20-pounder or a 5-pounder, um, they've got a lot of river to work with, and it's a very shallow river. So it's, you know, it's not unusual for people to have fish break off on rocks. It's not unusual for fish to lose fish on a jump. You know, the best fish we hook are often not landed. Hmm. You know, the encounters that stick with you are the ones that were over before they started. Yeah. I personally, I run a pretty hefty reel. I use a, it was designed as a heavy duty Chinook mooching reel. It's an Islander TR3 uh, converted for, for fly use. And, you know, that gives me 300 yards of backing. And our tippet, if you want to call it that, is 20 pound maxima. So we do our best to be, you know, loaded up for the fish we want to land, but some of the fish we hook are, you know, it's just, just not going to happen. So the thing about the lower Skeena is it's not a numbers deal. It's the potential to hook a truly memorable fish. And 
you know, the thing that I would say keeps our clients coming back from one year to the next is the is the uh, the encounters that they didn't get to see what was on the end of the line. The fish that <laughs> right. the line came off. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's like that fish that I mean, do you typically if if you get a a tug and you got a fish on, are a lot of the times are you seeing that fish at all or is it kind of gone? A lot of these you don't ever even know. Is it is it a twenty pounder or is, or was it a fifteen pounder? Okay, so here's here's a, a story that I always keep in the back of my mind because this goes back maybe five years ago or so. Um, it was third week of August and I hooked a fish just up a run we call Shamu, just upstream of the lodge where you're dealing with the whole river. So it's, you know, close to 300, well, let's say 275 meters across. And I hooked this fish and it tried to take on my line. It literally was cartwheeling on the other side of the river, bright silver. I could see it. I thought I had a 30 pound steelhead on what I landed was a 30 pound Chinook salmon. Oh, now, wow. That's late. It, chrome bright Chinook salmon. That's not what you would expect to catch in the middle of August. That's something you would expect to catch in June or July. But, you know, it just goes to show, you know, nature's calendar is perhaps different than what you think it is. And sometimes, you know, these runs are later than you think they're going to be. But if I had, I lost that fish earlier, I'd be telling you about the 30 pound steelhead that I had on that got away on me because I wouldn't have expected it to be a Chinook. So I was kind of, when I think of the big fish stories and the, the steelhead that we didn't see, I always kind of remind myself that there is always the chance that someone hooked a late Chinook. Yeah. But man, there's some big coho too. There's we get the coho. big Northerns. Oh, right. Yeah. The big Northern coho, they start showing up end of August and you know, those fish can be over 20 pounds too. So that's the neat thing about Skeena is you don't know what you're going to catch when something grabs and runs off into your backing. Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who has earned an exceptional reputation over the past few years in the fly fishing industry due to the popularity of their telescopic fly rod roof racks and statement-making artist series apparel lines. Their latest release for 2023 is the Jerian Universal Bike Rack Packing System, a brand new way to transport your fly fishing and outdoor gear. The Jerion will give any modern bike the ability to bring 30 pounds of gear with its front and rear articulated racks. Whether you ride a full suspension mountain bike, an e-bike, or even a carbon fiber road bike, the Jerion will get you and your fishing gear further faster and have much more fun along the way. I can tell you this has been a big struggle for me. I've been riding my bike, uh, both road bikes and mountain bikes, and had lots of issues over the years packing my gear, whether that's uh, crappy uh, storage on the back or a trailer that's just too big and bulky. So I'm excited to share this packing system, which is going to make it way more convenient and accessible to get out to the places you need to go. You can learn more about how Trestle is transforming the way you access your favorite water, backcountry, hunting zones, and camping spots. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now and be the first on the water and the farthest upstream and away from the crowds. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. We've talked a little about Chinook, you know, probably the last one we had George Cook on. He talked about, you know, swinging for Chinook. But what is that when you're out there, you know, the take of a Chinook versus the take of a big steelhead? What, what's the difference? You bet. And when we started this business, we were actually focused heavily on Chinook at that time. And then, you know, there's been some closures and, a loss of Chinook opportunities on the main stem Skeena, you know, years when the Skeena is closed, we fish the Kitimat. I love Chinook fishing. And what I love about it is the take is typically in the first half of the swing. So if you think of a 45 degree angle from your position downstream, 
The take is usually at the 45 or slightly above. Most steelhead takes happen after the 45, so in the second half of the swing. A great piece of steelhead advice is to let your fly keep swinging until it stops moving and to wade shallow so that you're close to the bank and let that fly swing into as shallow water possible. With Chinook, you don't have to worry about that. You you know, you can wade to the top of your knee, throw it out as far as you can, uh, usually try and have a, an aerial men so it lands set up ready to fish. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual for, it's like they see it coming. If it hit the water, move what feels like just a few feet, and boom, it just comes to a stop. You feel the big head shakes and, and then all heck breaks loose. That's what I like about Chinook fishing. The other thing about Chinook fishing that's really cool is as they're rolling through, they're breaking the surface. Oh, so, right. yeah, when you get, you know, 30 pound fish in front of you blubbing where they basically come up and show you their back and leave a big hole in the, the water, it, that's, that's exciting. Steelheading is a little more of a mental exercise because you have to believe that the fish is there. You're not getting this positive reinforcement of random fish rising. Oh man, this is amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason this is cool is that Chinook, you know, it's always, it's on my mind and stuff like that, but I'm always thinking steelhead, skeena, steelhead, right? But I mean, you've guys got this whole thing and obviously Chinook numbers, you know, you look at Alaska, there's lots of crazy stuff going on, who knows exactly, um, but it's still an opportunity, right? So there's a chance that, I mean, do you still see there's with your, you know, with your program, not equal, more steelhead, but our guys, like what percentage of people are roughly, you know, coming for just Chinook? Oh, it's small now. It's less than 10. It's probably, I'm going to say, 5 to 7% of the people we have booked would be for Chinook at this point. And part of that is just a general change in you know our schedule. We used to open up in the middle of June. So we would essentially have you know a solid couple months of Chinook fishing. But I got four little kids trying to have as normal a life possible as a fishing guide, instructor, lodge, airport picker upper. <laughs> um, so it's June's a nice month to have, have off, you know, the kids are out of school and it just works well for us to start, start in July. And you know what, from a personal fishing standpoint, uh, you know, I can get out and fish for Chinook in June on the Skeena when it's open or on places like the Kitimat, which are always open. Right. right? When does your, is your lodge, so does it open and close? Is there a certain time when just the, if someone would have come just stay at the lodge? Yeah, no, we, we, like I say, we do the two seasons. So we just wrapped up winter steelhead season and we do, I'm going to call it a soft close. The staff are still living there. We've pivoted towards gardening and making the place look nice for the summer, but there's not, we're not in business for guests at that time. So this is just a nice casual start to, to the summer. And what I've learned and I keep reminding myself every year is to get as much of the work done in May because sometimes in June mosquitoes can be bad and it's just a lot nicer to be gardening in May than June. Um, once we get into the end of July, you know, we're full swing. So it's all hands on deck, taking people fishing, feeding them and having good times. So it's nice to get the chores out of the way in May and June. And then in the winter we shut down and like I said, we do a lot of skiing as a, as a family but it's nice to to winterize the place and not worry about it for a few months. For sure. Is it skiing and snowboarding or is it all skiing? No, I mean, for us, it's skiing. We're always been skiers. And you know what? There's, I think there's potential down the road that maybe we would have heli skiers or something oh, here. Oh, right. But up to now, it's it's been a, a hard stop set up or shut everything down for the winter. 
and then set it up again in the spring. Yeah, yeah, good. Let's uh, go into the on the river a little more. So, and we'll just take it. Let's just say it's that first day, right? So we had a great night. People are there. They're they're hanging out. We probably had some drinks. Probably you know maybe a campfire. The next morning, it's kind of go time, right? It's like you know we're going to be going fishing. What does that look like? When are people? Just roughly, we getting up like first thing before light and getting in the jet sleds and just going everywhere. How does that look? No, usually we do breakfast at seven. Okay. And we hit the water by eight, um, you know, back around five. Dinner's at seven. But we have daylight till 10 and we're right on the river. So, you know, sometimes folks will fish a little longer. But, you know, there's really no upside from a steelhead fishing standpoint to getting out there at first light. That's a strategy that's that's born of competition. And what yeah. I mean by that is, it's this, this idea of, oh, if I don't get out there at six, Dave's going to get my spot. And oh my God. Exactly. And there are places, there are places, I mean, the Deschutes, which we fish, you know, it's like, that's exactly what's going on. You know, I mean, you're, you got your spot. You better be up before it's light. Otherwise somebody's going to be in it. It's lovely time of day to be out there. But um, from a productivity standpoint, the steelhead fishing that we do, the middle part of the day when water's warming up ever so slightly, that seems to be when the most action happens. And, you know, we will pivot that strategy slightly from time to time. Uh, the scenario that might see us moving towards an earlier start is if we get hit with a heat wave. So if it's, you know, I'll do it in Fahrenheit. If, if we're dealing with, you know, 90 degrees uh, and the warmest part of the day here at that time of year is going to be like six o'clock at night, which is, which is a surprise to some people. But, you know, that temperature is building throughout the day. So if we move everything up a little bit, you know, we're fishing in cooler weather. And I don't know if it's necessarily that much more productive with the fish. It's just a lot more comfortable for the anglers. And if we do end up in a scenario where we're dealing with high temperatures like that, water temperatures are still going to be fairly cool. We tend to do a lot of wet wading. And I personally, I love wet wading at that time of year because the water's cold. You get the sensation of uh, cold feet, but we're not standing very deep so you're you know you're standing in a foot of water oh, wow. but it's super hot outside so you're dressed like you're in the bahamas or something uh up top but you're you still get kind of a cooling sensation on your feet it's quite nice yeah so that could be us in august or whenever you know we do this like late august it's possible you could have a really nice summer day out there and we're just like loving it in the sunshine just in fishing yeah you know a trip to terrace at any time of year but even in august one is definitely going to want to include rain gear definitely going to include a second and third layered just in case. And you also want to plan that it could be 85 degrees out and sunny every day. You really need to be ready for it all. And whatever the forecast says, when you got on the plane, don't trust it. It changes quickly here. We're at a very low elevation. We're very close to the coast. Uh, weather can come up from the south. It can drop in from the north on us. Usually it comes straight off the ocean to the west, but we do get it all. And we often get it all in the same day. Well, let's go into a little more on the fishing because I think that's, and you talked about this in the last one. You did an awesome job. It was Roy. You just dug in deep, but let's, let's hit that again. So we're on the water and we're sitting there. We go out to some point, you got like 90 miles to fish. We find a, you know, a pool, we're on a side channel or whatever. What's that? Describe that again. How people, how are you finding those fish? How are you getting people like swinging? What gear are they using? All that. You bet. So with this particular trip, you know, we'll be broken up into obviously small groups, like a regular guided trip. Uh, we've got a fleet of jet boats. We've got seven jet boats and everyone's with a guide, of course, and instructor. And, you know, we'll spread out a little bit over the river to have best possible sample size of cover as much water as we can. And we don't fish a ton of different pieces of water throughout the day. We tend to, you know, kind of 
fish three. Hmm. And so if the first one you go to, you don't have a bunch of fish moving by you, or at least it doesn't seem that way. We don't tend to just bump upstream a little bit from there. We'll tend to move downstream. And when you find some fish, sometimes it's a good strategy if you have a strong push that comes through in the morning to drive the boat quite a ways upstream and see if you can encounter them again. Uh, so from a fishing standpoint, at, in August, with the idea that the fish are moving through, you have to be careful that you yourself don't move too fast. It's important to move through the run. But what we tend to do is cover an area of the run, make two or three casts, take a step, make two or three casts, take a step. But when we get to a feature, and I did talk about this in the previous yeah. episode, when you get to a feature that's important, a feature that's going to cause fish to hold, uh, a feature that's going to cause fish to have to make a move, we're going to turn on our trout fishermen and we're going to, you know, we're going to fish this side of the rock and that side of the rock and the front and behind. And we're going to give this feature a really good flogging, so to speak, to, to see, you know, to see if we can learn something from it. And what we might learn is that on this particular day, the fish are choosing around to go around the outside of that rock or on this particular day, maybe they're holding behind the rock. When we get that, we can take that knowledge and we can apply it to other runs, you know, throughout the day and other features and be like, okay, well, the fish are running very shallow today. And one thing that will cause steelhead to, to hold longer and, you know, in larger groups is if they encounter other steelhead holding on that feature. So if you've got a fantastic rock and we decide that, you know, there's a, some fish that are deciding to, use the seam that comes off of it that seam will will often you know keep producing for us for a period of time with different fish right because if the fish are moving by so this isn't a situation where you have a pool and there's 10 fish in it we're going to try and get three of them to bite this is a situation where we have fish swimming by us and they might choose to hold for you know a period of minutes and we get our we get our crack at them so with that being said you know it is important to move it is important to fish different pieces of water but it's a poor strategy when you have, you know, something spectacular in front of you to just make one cast and then take a couple steps. And that's a slightly different strategy than what we would employ um, last week, where winter steel had come in from the ocean. They're going to kind of hold in this section until the water level changes, and then they're going to move. They're quite spread out. We want to try and encounter them, as many of them as possible. So we're going to take two or three big steps every cast when we're fishing for winter steelhead. But this is different in the summer. And what's nice about this is if you have folks who aren't super mobile, aren't used to walking on slippery rocks, you know, we can find them a, a pea gravel spot or a bit of sand to kind of work where they can cast into bigger rocks. So I said at the beginning, we got a, a very varied clientele. And, and that's because a lot of folks first steelhead guide experience is with us, but we also get a lot of older folks who don't want to be super remote, don't want to deal with, you know, super sketchy waiting and like the idea that they don't have to race down the run, they can, you know, move at their pace and still be as successful. And, you know, nice thing with Laura Skeena, fish are shallow, don't need to cast a long way. Yes, there's spots where a long cast does help, but there's a lot of spots where essentially the fish are moving towards you. Oh, man, that's amazing. So you're sitting there and and how would you... I mean, you guys know them because you're, you're, you know, you know the river. Are these spots changing year after year? Do you get a flood and then this whole, the whole river changes or is it the same spots over year after year? I would say stretches of river remain important. So that, you know, the stretch of river itself is, and, and which carries the name. I used the term Shamu before there's a run across from us. So the Shamu run will, will still be there, but from one year to the next, it changes throughout the year. It changes too, um, as the water height goes. So you know, when you come, I'll show you the top of our boat launch. 
vertically is about 20 feet higher than where the water is in the winter, you know, the skeena comes up quite a bit at different times. And, you know, it can be clear and fishing at a height with about four times the volume of what it has today. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot to learn there. And what from one year to the next logs get pushed around, big rocks get pushed around. Uh, we're always looking for heads of islands. We're always looking for diagonal bars. We're always looking for, you know, old log roots or sorry, old log stumps and things like that. Anything that, that is out of place and breaks up the current causes the fish to have to make a lateral move. That's important. The whole thing looks really good. If someone is, you know, coming from somewhere else, they'll just start fishing up here and they'll two kilometers downstream, they'll, they'll feel like they need to go somewhere else. But what you want to do is find the little spot within the big spot and then hone in on the features that are in front of you. Yeah. And to find those features, you just pretty much, if you don't know it, the best advice is just to cover the water or how would you do that? Like, like say you're going to a run and say you're somewhere on the Skeena above you guys and somebody's just fishing it. How would they find those little buckets? You bet. Great question. So it's all about water speed, right? And understanding the importance of seams, gathering seams. And when you talk to anglers who've maybe caught a fish or had a fish on, and they're telling you their story and they say, oh, it just felt like I was going to get one. The swing was so perfect. Well, the fish is feeling the same thing. Where that water felt really good to you is because it was really good. And that's why the fish was there. And when you do enough of this that you can really understand between stuff that fish is pretty good and stuff that fish is really good, that's when your success rate will go up because you'll know to spend more time. And when does it, it could be, it could be the size of half a tennis court where there's just a little piece that gets broken up a bit more. It's just a little bit smoother. Uh, maybe the bottom's different. Maybe there's a little depression there with some old mossy rocks or something like that, but there's a reason that it felt good to you. And there's a reason that the fish used it. And then, then you can take that experience and apply it to other parts of the river. And you can say, okay, this reminds me of that other spot where I hooked a fish. And yeah, once again, you're looking for the little spot within the big spot on the stretch of river that makes sense. The stretch of river that, you know, might have a canyon above it or a canyon below it or a rapid below it, a rapid above it, maybe a tributary coming in, maybe some islands breaking things up. So when you're looking at the giant skeena, trying to think, well, where, where am I going to fish? You know, these are all little factors that increase the value of the real estate, so to speak. Right on. So when you're on that spot and you think you're in a good spot and you're fishing, take us back to that. What does that look like on the swing? You know, it sounds like you don't have to make huge casts, but how are you presenting that fly? Well, maybe talk first about, remind us again on the gear. What gear are you using and then how are you presenting the fly? You bet. So most of our fishing is done with spay rods between 12 and 13 feet in length that throw uh, grain weights between 525 and 650. That's what most of our fishing is done with. Uh, personally, I fish uh, a rod that is 12 foot 10 and throws a 575 grain line the most. Uh, the other rod I fish a lot is a little smaller. It's 12 feet in length and throws a 525 grain. And in both situations, I use a reel that's bigger than most people would with, with rods of those size. And the reason is I want the capacity, right? Yeah, more backing. You want a lot of backing. Yeah, exactly. you got it. More backing. And rate of retrieve too. And, you know, that Islander TR3 has a, a sealed cork drag that is just, you know, that thing will shut down a tarpon. It's it's a heck of a reel. Um, the big thing, whatever your setup is, the big thing is, is obviously to make sure that it balances, is comfortable to carry around. And the reason I like a heavier reel 
is when you put the reel on the rod in the fly shop, you thought this feels okay, and you kind of hold it, and it looks like it, it balances. You don't want it to sit level. When you're fishing, you want that rod tip up. That's super important. So having a little bit of extra weight in the reel makes it easy for that rod to tip up. You're not fighting to lift the tip, which sounds like a silly thing to complain about, but do that for five days in a row, eight hours a day, and, and you'll be annoyed by it. Are you saying you want that rod to ride tip up a little bit as you're swinging it? or uh, That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so you do. So absolutely. you don't want to be pointing your rod down in the water as you're swinging. No. So usually with the swing, what we'll do is let's say you, you cast across slightly downstream. And as I mentioned earlier, I like to incorporate a, an aerial man. So my fly lands ready to fish and then I'll get that rod up high. I'll hold that rod, you know, like I'm, I'm nymphing almost. And I'm trying to slow that fly down. I'm trying to get that fly to drop in the current a little bit, drop in the water column. And then as the fly swings towards the bank, generally what's going to happen is my rod tip's going to drop and either hold back a bit or move to the inside, depending on if I feel the fly needs more pace. I'm going to finish the swing with the rod pointing downstream parallel to the bank. And that's, by the way, the best place to start your new cast with the rod down low. So you're moving line as soon as you move the rod tip. Now, with the fishing that we do in August, with fish that are migrating through, it is important to be proximity to the bottom i'm not saying you, you should be touching the bottom because you shouldn't i'm saying that the fish are swimming up close to the bottom their eyes are towards the top of their head you want your fly to be front of mind for them so you know it's good to be within a foot of the bottom and if that if the river is two and a half feet of depth you need a sink tip that'll put you down to that or you can fish a dry line with a either a very sparsely dressed fly on a heavy hook or perhaps the poly lead or something like that, but you need to be down where the fish are going to see it. There are instances where we can catch fish on dry flies. Uh, usually it's more in September than August, but the dry flies that we use create a lot of disturbance on the surface. I mean, they make for tremendous exciting takes, but you know, they're getting the fish's attention. This is different when you have fish that are moving through because they're aggressive, but they're not generally willing to chase things too far sideways and come to the surface as much as once they start to hold station a bit more. So in September, October, water temperature drops a little bit. Fish are holding in the runs for longer periods of time. I don't know if they get bored or what it is or a little more territorial. At that time, they're more receptive to, you know, to chase a fly to the surface than those fish in August. Yeah. I mean, you're not fishing on the, you're basically using a fly that's getting down a little bit and there's some sort of tip you're, you're using some sort of sink tip pretty much all. Is that like, could that be an intermediate tip or something heavier than that? Well, the one we use the most is a product from Rio called a Motip. And the Motip that we use is a 10 foot Motip and you can get it in a variety of configurations. Um, the idea of the Motip is if you, if you have a heavy Mo, so that's a T14 tip and you have the one with two and a half feet of sink or the one with seven and a half feet of sink, the overall weight of the sink tip is going to be the same because there's a, a floating section that has the same grain weight per foot as the sinking tip section. So what this does for you is it allows you to have the similar casting experience regardless of whether you have a two and a half foot sink tip on or a, or a 10 foot sink tip on. Why that's important for us, the Mo tip, and why we like the, the shorter ones is the skein is full of big rocks and we don't want to have the sink tip get stuck in the rocks. And we want to be fairly close to the bottom. So what we tend to do is fish, you know, a good, a good first tip to try for most water is going to be the Mo uh, T11. So that's the medium Mo in a five and five. So five feet of it's going to be a sink tip. Five feet of it's going to be floating. 
Uh, we also fish the IMO. So these are intermediate MOTIP that the floating section is replaced with an intermediate section. So in that same five and five configuration, you have five feet of T11 sinking material and closer to the caster, you have five feet of intermediate. Why I personally love that tip is it's super um, adaptable. So if I throw it square and I mend on it, I can get the whole thing to drop down. If I want to swing it into shallower water, I can squeeze off on it a little bit tighter at the end of the swing um, and it'll be right there just underneath the surface. So as long as you're fishing on a tight line, the, the IMOs are really easy to manage and give you the versatility for more depth without having to change a sink tip. To be honest, most of the time with clients, we're using the, the floating mo. So this is, once again, in the 5 and 5 configuration, the 5 feet of T11 sink material, 5 feet of float. And you can get those in um, light, which is T8, medium, which is T11, heavy, which is T14, and uh, extra heavy, which is T17. And we do use them all. The two and a half feet of T17, it's like your sand wedge. It's it's a, a niche item, but it's really important in certain pieces of water. And that type of water would be a really big boulder garden, almost like getting towards being a rapid, but with some pockets, so real pocket water. And you combine that with a, a weighted fly and a short leader, and you can plunk that two and a half heavy getting down right now sink tip right in behind the boulder, right beside the boulder. You can fish that thing super precise. And that to me is is a real skill dry fly fishing is cool dry fly fishing is a mental exercise you got to believe it can happen you got to watch the water behind your fly that's a good tip um and you want your best to fish it short so you can see what's going on and you'll see the fish sometimes by the disruption on the surface that reject your fly or show interest but don't take it uh, so dry fly fishing is you know a lot easier you don't have to worry about snagging bottom fishing a heavy short sink tip with a weighted fly around basketball sized boulders, um, trying to drop down where the current's slower, close to the bottom, you know, fighting to keep it out of the heavy, fast stuff on top. That takes a tremendous amount of skill. Yeah, it does. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> What's the, the T thing? Is there an easy way to remember? We've talked about this over the years, but the, the T17, T40, you know, how to remember what, how the sinking rate on that, is there an easy thing or is that just something you got to kind of memorize? Um, I don't worry too much about the sink rate. I just kind of look at the water and I start with T11. And if, uh, if I need to go faster, we go to 14. Once again, T17 can go a long time without getting used. T11 gets used every day. And when the water is soft, we're on T8 or dry line with a, just a, a regular leader and either a slightly weighted fly or a really sparsely dressed fly. So if you had to pick one, it's going to either be the T11 or the probably the T11 and then T14. It'll be the T11. T11, T11 5 and 5 if you're going to show up with one sink tip. You know, we have a uh, we have a fully stocked fly shop on the premises. Oh, so you do? If someone wants to, oh, yeah. If someone wants to load up while they're there, we've got a great selection of uh, basically the gear that we're fishing. I'm talking about Maxima Ultra Green. I'm talking about Motips. I'm talking about Skagit Heads. Uh, I'm talking about Running Line. Uh, we primarily fish a, a product called NAM, N-A-M, Running Line, which is fantastic. So, yeah, we've got all that stuff there. We've got Islander Reels, Pierway Rods. But people can also show up without any stuff, and we're happy to lend them gear. And the guides always have lots of flies. So it's really just personal preference of how prepared you want to be yourself. Bear Vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable, epic, and safe. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. This in turn keeps your food safe, keeps the bears safe, and keeps you safe. 
I've got a classic story that I told. I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. I had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. When I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewall so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus it doubles as a nice camp stool. This thing is is legit. It definitely is one of my this might be my favorite feature is is the camp stool. You know, I love a good a good chair out there. Check in with the crew at Bear Vault at wetflyswing.com/bearvault. That's Bear Vault, B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T. Okay, back to the show. So we're on the water, and you get a take, and you got a fish. Let's just say it's screaming away. What's your advice, you know, to tell somebody in advance? Hopefully that happens for everybody. It's a screaming fish. What do you do with that fish? You know, I've got a little uh, a little spiel I often give people when I pick them up from the airport if they haven't been here before, and I'm driving them out to the lodge. And I'll, I'll say to them, please, when you do get a bite, whatever that feels like, don't do anything. Don't lift up. Don't rear back nastily. Just don't do anything as a starting point. You know, some guides will coach people to carry a loop of line and let the fish take the loop. Some guides will encourage people to hold the rod a little higher and drop it when they feel a bite or move the rod tip towards the fish. Or if they're running a, a click and paw reel, live dangerously with your drag way, way down low and let the fish just turn the reel. Those are all good strategies. Um, but the big thing here is to not, what we call it trout setting or farming, not to trout set, not to farm your opportunities. And a great piece of advice is never call anything a trout bite. The weirdest little bump you think you just had, assume it was a good, good steelhead that you want to catch moving to your fly, but deciding not to take it. You're going to repeat the cast. You're going to tell your guide, Hey, I think I had a bump. You're going to try a different fly. You're going to rest the fish. You're going to tell your fishing partner coming behind you. Hey, I, I had a bump here. And that's just good communication. What we learned from dry fly fishing is that more fish come to the fly without taking it than the ones that just grab it and are instantly running towards the backing. And if you can avoid trout setting, you'll end up with a lot more fish landed. That's it. So basically you get a, uh, yeah, if a fish is screaming, just hold on and let your reel basically do the work for you. You know, there's a lot of folks out there who favor a click and paw reel and you know, I've, I've got some and enjoy fishing them myself, but we do see a lot of click and Pauls get blown up mm. up here. Um, blown up mean that like the, the springs re- get popped out. Oh, wow. So literally the, the reel does blow up. It expl- explodes. Yeah. It just doesn't, it, you know, it's for most of the fish, it's okay. But you know, for the truly exceptional fish, you really want to have a real, like you're fishing for tarpon, uh, a quality disc drag reel with lots of backing. But, but hey, once again, I'm going to get some grief on this because a lot of people love fishing click and pauls, and you can certainly catch large fish with them. But I've definitely seen more of them get destroyed up here than, yeah. you know, than a solid 
essentially a saltwater disc drag reel. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, no, that's an interesting take. And there's the sound thing too, of course, right? I mean, I'm not sure what the Islanders, uh, if they have a lot of sound, but you know, some people like the quiet reel and some people like the sound. What, what's your take? Do you like a noisy reel where you hear it down river screaming away? Oh, you know, reels are such a personal thing. And you know, you'll, you'll find people that go all in on one brand and they show up and they have just like a case of like hatches right? and other people, it's a little bit more eclectic. Uh, you know, personally, I've got a Schamberg reel that I love and fish. I've, I've got some hatch reels I really like, uh, fish a ton of Einersons. Um, but that Islander TR3 setup as a fly fishing reel is the showstopper. To me, it's, it's the most robust one out there. But that being said, you know, there's a lot of great reels. Yeah. A lot of great reels. So we've got all this going, you've got a huge set, you know, that all the knowledge are going to be on the water with you or one of your guides probably going to be mixing that up a little bit. What is the, you know, is there going to be a piece here where people have some, you know, more of like the school thing we talked about where there's going to be a piece where we can actually go through a PowerPoint, talk about what we're doing and they can have something, maybe even like a online course for a later point. Is that something that we'll be digging into? At this time, I I haven't prepared an online course. At this time, what I'm anticipating is doing as much of this on water as possible. We've got a, a fantastic casting dock on the back channel right in front of our place. We use that a ton for teaching. It's great for evening sessions, just a quick cast, uh, busting out like a comp rod, something with like a 73, 74-foot head, 15-foot rod, you know, trying to throw 150-plus feet on the, the dead water of the back channel. Uh, it could also be... A casting that takes place, you know, out in moving water in front of the lodge after hours. Uh, but as much as possible, we're going to try and blend the casting with the fishing. So we keep people in a situation where if they encounter a fish, a fish can bite their fly. They don't necessarily have wool on there. Uh, you know, a lot of times casting courses aren't done with actual flies and hooks, but in this situation, we're going to try and keep people fishing as much as possible. We can do some fly tying sessions at night we can definitely put together a slideshow uh, if people want to talk more about the theory. But my goal is to do as much of the work on the on the water in a fishing scenario as possible. That's cool. Yeah, a, a slideshow. We could talk more about that. That might be cool just to see, yeah, maybe some of the, whatever, some of the photos, some of the history. You know, and I know there's some history. You talked about that of the lodge, right, going back in the day. I, I'm always loving hearing a little bit of the background, right? Like what was the people before us? And I don't know, the Skeena. When you look at the Skeena, what is, maybe just tell us like a little bit of the history. Are there a bunch of people old school that are like, you know, people you would know of that the Skeena was the place if you take it back or do you know a little bit of that history? All right, let's talk about the history of, of, let's call it the commercial recreational sector up here. So these would be the fishing lodges. So a lot of the early lodges were run by Germans. These were folks that um, came over and instantly recognized the potential of the fishery and marketed it back home. And at that time it was known as a, a place where you could come and catch numbers of big fish. And, you know, I'm going back a ways here. People were killing most of what they How far back are we going? hundred years? Yeah, let's, let's go, let's call this the seventies and the eighties. Okay. So not, yeah. Probably the eighties. Yeah. Um, and you could kill steelhead then. So it wasn't just about harvesting salmon. It was about harvesting steelhead too. And a lot of the fishing wasn't done with a fly. It was done in a very productive uh, technique. We call it bar fishing. I do it with my kids. It's a lot of fun. Essentially, it looks like this. You flip out uh, a lure called a spinning glow. It doesn't have to go very far. Imagine a little cylinder with wings that spins in the current with a bit of flash on it, a bunch of different colors. 
So you've got your lure, the spin and glow, basically put out, you know, take that rock I talked about. You put it out right on that seam that looks pretty good, and it's just always out there doing the right thing. So whenever a fish swims by, it's there. Whereas when we're fly fishing, we're moving our fly through that area. So it's not there the whole time. We're trying to keep it in there as much as possible. So that's a big thing uh, when you look at why do people who are bar fishing with spinning glows catch more fish than people fly fishing? Well, it's because they're spinning glow. If it's in the right spot, it's always there doing the right thing. Whereas we're working to keep our fly in that spot as long as possible. So back then, back in the 80s, uh, you know, a lot of the guiding was based on, you know, spinning glow fishing, people throwing spoons, fly fishing starting to come into it a bit, but it's a smaller percentage of the market. Um, there was a guy named Noel Geiger who really shifted the narrative there from, hey, come and kill a bunch of fish to, hey, this is big fish country, come and catch a trophy fish. And then this next generation of guide operations of which we're a part of, you know, is all catch and release. So it's more of come for the experience, come and try and catch a good one, but we're not going to take anything home. We're going to let everything go. And, you know, the bulk of the business these days, doesn't matter what lodge you're at, is, is fly fishing because I think people are up for the challenge. I think that, you know, the casting's enjoyable. It's a great way to fish a wide, shallow river like this. But, you know, it, I think perhaps it means it means more when they have to work a little harder for it. But that being said, you know, catch me on the river. I'm going to be probably out there with my kids. They're seven and under. We're bar fishing. We're not fly Yeah, fishing. you're trying to get them into some action. And yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, so we'll let, let the fish go. But it's, you know, it's the same thing. We're just trying to get them on the river, having a good time. Was that change hard back in then? I mean, if you think about it, when folks were doing that, do you think between the, you know, catch and kill versus catch and release? Because there's a lot of places around the, the country, the world, you know, Alaska, places in the lower 48, which are still catch and kill. And that's still, and there are people talking like, hey, you know, well, right. I mean, the skiing is a good example of actually a really, I would say a successful catch and release program. And like, was it hard to get there? Um, I don't think so. I think that steelheaders were kind of sick of killing fish and, you know, you have abundant runs of salmon like sockeye. So it just made more sense to go there for your food versus All right. steelhead. Are there still guys out there for steelhead that are just total you know, gear using spoons and all that. Is there plenty of those guys still do that catch and release? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I, w I would say there's, there's definitely in the last decade, there's been a, a strong trend towards people fly fishing. And if you look at Alaska and I spent seven years going to Alaska West fishing the connect talk. And the first year I went there, there was a heavy focus on filling a box. This was during Chinook season. There was a heavy focus on, hey, you know, you're allowed to bring back whatever it was, 50 pounds of fish. You know, how much have I caught so far? And when I say 50 pounds of fish, that's dressed fish, right? So, um, it's a lot of fish. Like, how many fish is 50 pounds of fish? That could be like, well, it depends how big they are, but you know, that, that it could be three or four fish, big fish, maybe some sockeye in the mix. But this was the measure of a good trip. But I caught on to it too myself. You know, as my coming home and my box isn't full, why would you do that? You know, you could bring 50. Why wouldn't you bring 50? So it changes the focus of the trip. It changes the measure of the trip. It changes the guide experience because the guide's now cutting fish at the end of the day with the bugs. So, you know, they got to save a little bit of their energy for that. When you take the box away and the Alaskan fishery, and I think it's widespread, might be the whole whole state, but certainly on the Connect Talk, the trout fishery is catch and release. So when people are just focused on trout, you know, they don't necessarily have the concern of the box. And that's where we're at here with with our lodge, we're not worried about killing fish or filling a box. 
we're just going out and having a nice time trying to, you know, encounter a fish that's going to be special to us. And guys don't have to worry about cleaning fish at the end of the day or cleaning blood out of their boats or some guys, you know, bummed out because his box is only half full or, you know, but I'll tell you the previous owners, bless their hearts. When we took the place over in the center of the parking lot, there was like a big sign with a hook on it and a scale where you could weigh your giant fish and get your photo taken next to it. So that's, I'll call it a progression. It's maybe a sh- not the nicest way to put it, but this is the way things have gone. People are more focused now on, you know, making a nice cast in a place that appeals to them yep. than producing. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, it's always the thing. I always think of like what we're doing and maybe you get older and you change, right. And stuff like that. But it's, you know, the whole thing, like fishing, fly fishing is just as much about the traveling, at least I think for a lot of people, like getting there, the places, the community, the local people, right. But, um, then you have the, yeah, the killing just isn't as much, but it still is out there. Like around the country, you still see it where people are like, Oh, putting food on the table. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Putting food on the table. On the Skeena, I should clarify, we don't do it, but you are able to most years retain sockeye. You are oh, able you to can. retain coho, but it's not part of our program, but it's something that we could do not as a business, but just like myself, I could go out there with my family and, and catch four sockeye. And now we've got, you know, food for a couple barbecues. So those opportunities still exist in this part of the world. But when you're trying to run a business and be consistent with your product and what is your brand, it's really challenging to mix a catch and release lodge with a fill your box lodge and i know alaska does it pretty good but they do so so alaska mixes alaska has the catch and release and they have the the kill as much as you want in the same deal yeah but it's 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 not an easy easy line to straddle so yeah so we're all in on catch and release our guides love that they don't have to clean blood out of their boats i love that i don't have to worry about attracting bears to the place with a bunch of dead fish yep (laughs) and people aren't worried about uh you know, how many fish that they've killed. This is good. So we got the, uh, we got the four, I'm going to call it the three B's. We got the boats, bears, and bugs. So let's take a couple of things out. Bears and bugs. This is probably not going to be a thing we need to even worry about probably in August, but are we going to have a chance to see bears up there? Will you be seeing bears? Yeah, we see bears most weeks. Um, sometimes they'll move through our property. It's usually black bears. We have grizzlies occasionally. Um, but we don't tend to worry too much about bears because we're approaching the water by boat. We don't tend to, you know, pull into a run and then have a bear come out. Yeah. You're making noise. You're coming out with the sled. It's, they know you're coming. Yeah, exactly. You're coming in with a, a large jet boat versus if you were, you know, hiking around somewhere, trout fishing. So we most often see bears from the boat while we're driving, you know, we, yeah. there's one running along the bank there and they're, you know, they're at that time of year, they're, they're supposed to be eating berries and, starting to transition towards fish, you know, they'll, they'll be eating salmon carcasses once salmon have spawned, but in August, you know, primarily they're going to be higher up. So we're going to see bears from a distance. Um, bugs are not on the same level as Alaska. We can have very uncomfortable bugs here for a couple of weeks in June and it doesn't happen every year. It just depends on how much standing water's around, but usually that's done by mid July. Yeah. Hey, what was the, what, sorry, what was the third one? Oh, and, and so the, the other red, I always love my boat talk. So what type of jet boats are you guys running? Oh, uh, you bet. So we've got a few different ones, but the ones we use, uh, the ones the one that we like the best, I think, overall is from Kingfisher. They're called Shallow Water Extreme. It's the longer version. They're 21 and a half feet long. 
Uh, we have those with 200 horsepower sport jets or with 310 horsepower EcoBoost engines. So enables us to, you know, cover lots of ground. The sport jet's been around forever. It's it's kind of the standard for you know shallow water inboards. And we also have uh, some boats that have outboards, um, but we we tend to use those. Uh, when the water is a little bit higher in the spring, when the water is super low, then we'll, we'll usually be on inboards or really small inflatables with, with, uh, with small outboard jets, you know, between our guide staff and our regular boats that we have, we have access to about a dozen different jet boats. Um, so depending on the time of year, it might change what we're in, but certainly in August, I'd expect to be in Kingfishers with inboards. Nice. Well, this is good. So, um, and we, I think we might even have a potential, we're not going to throw any names out there, but there might even be a bonus, uh, teacher maybe on the trip if it works out this year, but it's going to be pretty much the guide trip. There'll be let's, you know, if you had, um, you know, six guys or whatever, is it going to be like a guide, two guys per on each boat per guide or how's that look? Yeah. Generally speaking, most of our fishing is going to take place with, uh, two people plus one guide slash instructor. Um, that being said, there might be days where we put three people in a boat with one, and there might be days where we have three guests in a boat with two instructors. Uh, our boats comfortably can carry five or six people, but most of our fishing is going to be done uh, as a group of three, one guide slash instructor and a couple of guests. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, perfect. Well, anything before we uh, take it out of here quickly, anything else we want to touch on? I mean, we've got now a couple episodes the first one, I think you went deep into some of the techniques and tactics, but just the trip in general, like what we're talking about doing here, anything else we missed as far as the experience, what people can expect? Um, I, I think, you know, some really good advice for folks coming, if, the, if it's your first time to BC, is take a day or two in Vancouver before you come up here, because it's a totally different experience than up here. Um, if, you know, if you're looking to buy some gifts or something for for folks back home vancouver's got great opportunities for tourists to spend money once you get up to the northwest here we're going to be more focused on the fishing so if it's your first time i would try and uh, get yourself a day or two in vancouver also gives your luggage a chance to reunite with you if something weird happened at your your airport that you headed out of which seems to be you know a more common thing these these days of people's luggage not moving at the same speed they are so I think it's always good advice to not have too tight of a, a transfer schedule. But with that being said, we have half a dozen flights daily from Vancouver up here. So if there is a situation where folks get here and their fishing bag hasn't uh, been on the, put on the same plane, we'll typically get it on the next flight. And, and obviously at the lodge, we've got a, a ton of gear that we're happy to lend people. So that would be my big thing here is if you're coming to BC for the first time, trying either at the beginning or the end of your trip, uh, manage some time in, in Vancouver. What's your fly? Like if we were going out that first day, does it matter what we put on there, color or size, all that stuff? <laughs> Great question. Um, I fall into the, the camp of people that don't worry too much about the particular fly as long as it's being presented well and I like the way it looks. I like to fish a lot of prawns. Uh, Mike orlowski has got a, a fly called a Mikey prawn. Tie that in orange, pink, purple, but tie it in a variety of sizes. So this is perhaps the best advice is – you know, pick the pattern you like, but tie a small version and tie a really big version and tie a normal version. Oh, right. Uh, I some that, you know, have a bit of weight on them and some that are unweighted because those adjustments will be made in response to water clarity and the type of water we're fishing. So it's not so much about we need a totally different fly. We just need the same fly, but built a little bit different. So I think if, if people have 
four or five patterns that they really like the looks of and they believe in. Tie those patterns in you know, a few different color combos, but most importantly, different sizes and uh, you know, at some weighted and some unweighted. And I would say inch-wise, a small fly here is a couple inches long. A big fly is five and a half inches long. And a normal size is going to be, you know, maybe three to four inches in length. Total length from the, you know, the eye to the back of the tail. Okay. Yeah. And color-wise, just use your normal, whatever steelhead color you like, whether that's black or purple. Yeah. Or... Hey, if you, if you nailed me to two combos, I would say a, a peachy orange with a little bit of pink for one. And I would say something with a, a blend of purple, blue, and perhaps a little black and a little silver in there. Yep. A little silver. Awesome. And, and singles with flash, you will meet people who really like a lot of flash on their flies and folks that are constantly picking the flash to boo out of the fly. But I think that's really, once again, in response to water clarity and what the weather's doing. So if the water's a little bit off color and the sun's out, I want more flash. If the water's clear and the sun's out, I want, I'm going to trim out some of that flash boo. I don't want it to stick out quite so much. Right. And if it's the water, what if, what if the water, does the water ever during this time of year, is it ever going to muddy up and get kind of nasty? It's absolutely possible if we get a whole bunch of days of rain in a row. But the nice thing about August is snow melt's done. What can happen in the early part of the season is you can get a bunch of rain and a heat wave one after the other on snow that hasn't melted yet. And that causes it all to come down at once. And that can put the river out for a period of time and cause us to push to tributaries or coastal stuff. But by the time we get to August, the snow should be gone. And it's not like we're getting new snow in the hill at that time of year. October can be tricky because you can get, you know, the, the first couple snowfalls of the year, which rarely stick around and are often followed by rain, which melts them. And, and that's the famous, you know, bulkly blowout or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel pretty lucky just the timing because of when we're going, right? I mean, we were lucky enough to get this period of like late August, you know, early September, whatever, where, which is like, you know, primed. And this is not the shoulder season, right? If you're going to pick a time to go, this is probably one of the best times to fish the main stem, Skeena. Well, you know, to ask someone when the best time is a little, <laughs> little bit tricky because right. you know, we can have the best fishing of the year in July. We can have the best fishing in October in response to, you know, run timing. If a fish are early, like they were in 2018, July was way better than normal, but we paid for it in October. In years like a couple of years ago where fish were late, we didn't catch anything in July, hardly, but we had great fishing in October right up to the end. So the nice thing about being in the middle is you're not as really affected by early or late run timing. So August is the middle. And if you look at, um, you know, most seasons, peak migration is going to be anywhere from the first week of August to about the 15th. And then you think of how long it takes those fish to, to swim up. Um, usually you're going to see um, the highest index scores off of Tai anytime between the 20th of July and the 10th of August down at Tidewater. Okay, good, good stuff. Well, we've got plenty of other questions we'll leave uh, for the next one. And we got a good week because this is just kicking off, uh, you know, Steelhead Week here, Skeena Week, whatever, you know, we want to call it. But we've got TU um, Canada coming on so we're going to be talking about some conservation issues and then i'm hoping that we might even have that mystery guest on this week we're not even going to announce it right now but uh we'll stay tuned for that so we might have another backup uh, person that's going to dig more into steelhead fishing um if we're lucky here so um so awesome brian well i guess we'll send everybody out if they're listening now to uh, skinaflyfishing.com if they have questions and if they want to get involved in this trip obviously they can connect with me and we'll, we'll put this together but uh, yeah thanks again for putting uh, another great episode together 
Hey, thanks, David. Always nice speaking with you. You have yourself a great day. There we go. Brian Niska breaking it out again. Wetflyswing.com slash 449. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash 449, and that'll get you some links and everything we talked about today. One of those links will be wetflyswing.com slash giveaway is your chance to win this trip that we just talked about today and all the gear that's going to go along with this package. Check it out right now. And if you want to get a slot to this trip, um, definitely enter the giveaway. But if you just want to save a spot right now, wetflyswing.com slash school and uh, enter your name and email and I'll follow up with you and let you know uh, what we have for availability. And uh, the sooner you get this, the better chance you have to head out on the river with uh, with yours truly, uh, the Skeena Spay Lodge. And guess what? We have a mystery guest as well this year. So I'm excited uh, to share this. A mystery guest. This is It doesn't get much better than this. It's like you got fireside chat with Dave, which we're going to be doing um, definitely on this trip. But the mystery guest, man, this is... This is going to be ridiculous. So let's do our, our listener shout out with uh, with Jesse Collins today. Jesse uh, Collins uh, reached back out after we reached out to him. And uh, we uh, reached out on the last, let's see here, this was the last uh, trip to the Northern Lights Lodge. And, uh, and Jesse said, uh, thanks for the email and thanks for such a badass podcast. I am from Southern BC and my favorite fish to fish for is West Slope Cutthroat. There you go. Thanks, Jesse, for checking in. Um, This is awesome. I always, when I get a chance and I have time, I love to reach out to people and see where everybody's coming from. If you're listening right now and you want to get a chance to shout on this podcast, you can reach out to me by email. Let me know. And I would love to put together an episode for you. I think West Slope Cutthroat, we've done a couple of those, maybe a few, but we're probably due for another one. Um, As always, there's too many species and not enough time in the day but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. So I hope to hear from you soon. I would love to connect with you. I'd love to see you on this trip up to the Skeena Lodge. If you need some help with your spay game, if you're brand new, um, if you're an expert, whatever it is, it doesn't matter because um, the Skeena is one of those places. Uh, nothing like it. So I uh, hope to see you there. Okay, so where are we heading next? Where are we heading next? I can tell you right now, we just kicked off Steelhead Week. This is Skeena Steelhead Spay Week. Uh, Skeena Steelhead Week Skeena Spay Week I think the triple alliteration is good Skeena Steelhead Spay Week is what we got going here and uh, we're going to be rolling along tomorrow and then we're going to hit this up for a third episode uh, and we are going to dig in to something very special that we also haven't had on before we're going to talk a little conservation uh, all week so we got the Steelhead Skeena Week all week this week (laughs) if you have any feedback for me let me know And uh, we'll take it from there. All right. I'm going to get out of here. I hope to see you on the river. And if not, I hope to connect with you online. And I hope you're having a great afternoon, a great evening, or a great morning, wherever you are in the world. And I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for checking in today. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.